This is Evan Barrett. Welcome to the Two Minute Hate, broadcasting live from the Raider Cove. We're gonna get back into the the swing of uh, some straight up dumb shit uh, <laughs> this week. Uh, try to be less less somber, less serious. Um, the first thing uh, I planned on talking about was this Robert Lee thing. So <laughs> there's some. Uh, Asian-American broadcaster with ESPN named Robert Lee, and he got pulled from uh, UVA's football coverage, their college football coverage, because ESPN was worried uh, (laughs) that his his name would be offensive to people. And I think, you know, I haven't seen, like, real think pieces about it, probably because it's so fucking stupid, but, um, I assume, like, the take on Twitter, and I assume someone will write the take, is, like, look at, like, the cowardice that's been incentivized by, uh, by, like, this climate, and, like, this guy, Robert Lee, is, like, just sort of a victim, you know, like, his, his name being Robert Lee has exactly nothing to do with Robert E. Lee and, you know, his family are presumably immigrants to the United States in the last hundred years or so. That's when most Asian Americans came. They don't have anything to do with slavery or the Civil War, and yet his professional life is compromised by this association. That's sort of like the, in a weird way, it's like the sort of bigotry you know, judging someone or someone's life being constrained by their name is sort of like a <laughs> discriminatory outcome, although, uh, albeit a very specific one. But I think another observation uh, that maybe somebody's already made, but I'm going to make anyway, is that I think for the speech code folks, this should provide clarity on how dumb the public and most people think they are and how little moral validity people really assign to this movement. You know, like you could, you could think that when these companies fire people or, um, take people off the air or issue statements of apology, that they're sort of siding with a certain moral position in the culture But of course they're not. They're making an evaluation of how to make something that's bad for PR go away. Um, And I think what this demonstrates is that corporations who have analysts and lawyers who look at these things are increasingly concluding that like the mobs of people who would come after a corporation for doing one thing or another are morons and have no like, high-minded commitment, but are just sort of looking for targets, and that even in an instance where somebody who's just not in control of their name, um, you know, that that would still bring the ire of these groups. Now, I think ESPN was probably wrong. Um, I mean, certainly you could, you could probably find on Twitter someone who said if this kid had continued, or this young man had continued broadcasting, you know, they shouldn't have Robert E. Lee, or sorry, Robert Lee, broadcasting uh, in Virginia because, you know, that's insensitive, whatever, whatever. 
Like, someone would have said that on Twitter. But I don't think the sort of, like, leading intellectual lights of the speech code left, the types of people who write articles in support of firing the Google memo writer. I mean, I don't think anyone uh, in, like, an influencer role would have called for this guy to be pulled from the games. But that's not really the point. The point is that ESPN worried that they might. Um, And ESPN had decision makers. Now, ESPN is like a particularly... Uh, cowardly and stupid organization. So it's it's not surprising that they came to the conclusion they came to, and you can view it in that framework. But I just think it's worth noting that, like, I think this just reveals what people actually think of the speech enforcers. Like, no one really believes that these are principled or important stands. We... We all think, whether we say it or not, that they're, like, extremely capricious and target just as many illegitimate targets as legitimate targets, and ESPN must have come to that conclusion, and that's why they did this. So, like, I think if you're on the speech code left and you're not paying super close attention, you could think you're, you could think you're winning, or that at least you're moving in the right direction in getting corporations and institutions to be more responsive um to more responsive to demands about um and it's important to say i guess that this isn't even a speech code thing right like it's not something a person on espn said it's literally their name that was deemed perhaps objectionable but like they it is the same group they're afraid of um but yeah, so I think I think that's interesting. Um, and I think, you know, it's simultaneously evidence of, like, the power of sort of, like, agitators that move to prevent anything offensive from being broadcast to millions of people. But at the same time, it's evidence that institutions don't actually respect those arguments. They just attempt to preempt them. Uh, usually on some sort of, you know, for a financial interest. Um, So it's, you know, it's a very, like, patronizing and belittling uh, perspective that I think is (laughs) well-earned. And I think people should just consider, you know, look at this situation and be like, oh, that's what they think we're going to do. They think we're going to get up in arms that there's an Asian-American named Robert Lee broadcasting a game. Um, and there's a reason that's what people think of the speech code folks, um, cause there hasn't been any enforced sort of rubric, like there's no consistency and no platforming. There's no consistency in demanding people to be fired. Like there's, you know, like I said, it's just very capricious and, uh, this is just sort of like a funny, a funny outcome. Although I do feel, feel bad for that guy. I mean, if you're a young man and you're like a... I don't know exactly what he was, if he's a sideline reporter or what, but, like, you know, individual gigs in sports journalism are incredibly important. And to have, like, potential TV spots taken away from you because of your name, like, is an outrage. And, you know, I mean, this wouldn't help his career, but, like, there's got to be legal action he could take. Though, you know, if his goal is to be a sports journalist uh, and not just to have money, then you don't want to break your ties 
to ESPN, but this is a, a very unfair thing that's happened to this individual. No, I am not joking. He's an Asian guy named Robert Lee. Okay, like, the, you might be able to tell these two people apart. This is 15. Okay, you might be able to tell these two people apart, Robert E. Lee and Robert Lee. Okay, you might, you might actually be able to see the difference between them. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's rather striking. They do not look the same in any way because, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you get these two mixed up, it's because you're stupid. First of all, I think the great mistake here by ESPN is assuming the college students know who Robert E. Lee is. Um, second, uh, you know, the Bachelor season has, has wrapped up and, um, or the Bachelorette with, with Rachel Lindsay, the first black Bachelorette has wrapped up and, um, now we're on Bachelor in Paradise and, uh, I don't know, you know, of my 40 listeners, probably less than 10, (laughs) watch The Bachelorette or Bachelor in Paradise, or maybe it's more, but I watch it. We watch it at my house. And, um, you know, I might have to, I might have to get off this series. Like there's an, there's a very disturbing trend going on, uh, with the Bachelor franchise that I think is sort of the result of, uh, Chris Harrison spiraling megalomania, which is that, like, they have sort of acted as if, they have the ability to handle these like incredibly weighty themes like on the bachelorette there was a subplot about uh, a character who was sort of racist lee and on an episode towards the end of the season they sort of brought a lot of the men back including lee and they gave the black contestants an opportunity to sort of confront lee about his racism and lee sort of apologized Eh, not really. I don't want to give him too much credit. He he didn't really cop to anything, but said he still needs to, like, learn and stuff. But during this whole thing, Chris Harrison was sort of adjudicating the issue, like, as if he was a well-positioned person uh, <laughs> to, like, help America heal from racism, uh, you know, as opposed to a middle-aged white guy who hosts The Bachelor, And, like, that was disturbing in and of itself. And now, on Bachelor in Paradise, there were these rape allegations. And, again, they sort of had Chris Harrison... Like, I I think with these things, you either need to, like, fully shut down production and give some indication that you take these things incredibly seriously or not address it at all and be like, we're a stupid reality show and have, like, legal processes take place that you just don't participate in but you can't what you can't do is like approach the issues and have your regular on-air talent handle it like they know anything about it and so like it's funny like uh chris harrison had all these like interactions like there was an accusation of sexual impropriety i think from uh a producer and then that got production shut down and then chris harrison Like, one of their ways of dealing with this is he'd just go to cast members, people with a financial and social incentive, to not say anything and be like, did you think something fishy went on? And they'd never use the word, like, rape or assault. Like, he'd never even say it. He'd just be like, did you feel that the atmosphere was uncomfortable? And they'd all be like, no, like, it's... uh, 
everything is fine. And, you know, it really had, like, the vibe of sort of, like, Saddam Hussein asking his cabinet officials if they think his latest idea was good. It's like, do you approve of the plan to invade Kuwait? Oh, yes, Saddam. It's the it's the best plan I've ever seen. Like, it was very much um, just this, like, guiding the witness and the witness... Uh, <laughs> also receives money from you and admires you so like even if you weren't leading the witness it would be a problematic dynamic and then so they just sort of like trot out all these morons who have a financial attachment to the franchise being like well i don't think anything happened and the show's like well i think we dealt pretty maturely with that uh (laughs) and so like i don't know i guess this is the problem with reality tv like these are real people, inevitably real stuff will come up, and then when there's, like, a weighty issue, you're like, oh, like, manipulating a bunch of morons with alcohol in an extreme social situation to produce dramatic results, like, always results in, like, a low-level victimizing of all of them, but then there are, like, these discrete moments where the victimization might be quite profound, and, like, that's uncomfortable as a viewer... Um, but yeah, it's gross. Like they, they handled it. They handled both of these things about as poorly as you could. And with a real sort of, uh, unearned arrogance of like this reality franchise can, can settle racism and sexual assault once and for all for America. Okay, we got to talk about okay, Kenny and Lee yes. and how we talked about Kenny and Lee for an hour and a half today. Was it just an hour and a half? Cause it felt like. Five days. You weren't done with it. You kept the conversation going. I know I did. Well, you know, I, 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 it's very rare, you know me, it's very rare that I come into a show and I don't have complete control of where I think it's going to go. And I, I had no clue it was going to go that direction. I really didn't know. I knew we were going to broach the subject, but I didn't know the response I was going to get. And I just thought, I don't know, I just thought it went in such a powerful way in a powerful direction I thought let's just have this dialogue and I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day I don't know if we'll air all that but I just thought what a great conversation to have and and this might sound stupid as a dad but a teaching moment like I think Lee needed that and I I really respect the way that Kenny and a lot of the other guys responded it wasn't with anger it was kind of in support of trying to teach this guy his ignorance and stupidity and trying to help him What I loved is when you said life isn't Instagram perfect. So we can be able to talk about Kenny and Lee and racism, and we can talk about Dean and his broken family. You know, after the show the other night, I I got inundated with tweets and text messages of like, how dare you? How dare you out Dean and his family? And I I thought if if that made you feel uncomfortable, then good. That was my intent. That was the reason. You know, life, you're, as you just said, life's not Instagram pretty. You don't get to put the filter on it and go, oh, look how happy we are. Our life is perfect. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm considering dropping out, but I probably won't because I'm lazy. Um, now, a quick liberal civil war item. Liberal civil war, bitches versus bros. I think um, we've talked a lot on the show about how, like, the focus on Russia is destructive and, like, the core criticism of both the left and the right of mainstream liberals that, like, they don't have an agenda Americans are that into and they just keep talking about Russia. 
I think that's a good criticism. But, you know, it was just a matter of time until the left got around to adopting a completely electorally disastrous strategy once again and reveal their true selves. I mean, the Bernie Sanders thing was this really interesting and I think important moment where like most people on the left would not allow themselves to look at the few times Bernie had compromised or worked within the system and decide that he was a uh, a traitor or, you know, impure. I mean, even when Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton and told his supporters to go vote for Clinton, a lot of people who didn't, uh, who concluded that they shouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton still weren't mad at him for saying it. They weren't like, at the end of the day, Bernie takes money and is a hack like everyone else. There's sort of like a mature an electorally mature approach, which is like, you know, Bernie has to do certain things based on his position, but I'm a voter, so I make my own decision. Like, I don't know. It was, it remains to be seen if that's sort of like an important guiding light for the left going forward strategically. Um, and, you know, the left's not a monolith, so this thing I'm about to talk about and insult, uh, it doesn't mean everyone on the left. I just am I'm talking about the people I'm talking about. But some of the Occupy organizer folks um, unveiled this new resistance strategy, which is like a week-long... It's sort of like a long-term protest strategy, like an old protest strategy, like you disrupt uh, life by sort of being out in public in certain cities. Um, And I think this is just like such a self-destructive instant like there's a there's a lot of this that seems to me like it's like oh like we're part of the conversation now we actually ran a candidate last time we're as close to electoral success as we've ever been people are talking about income inequality and medicare for all and like so many issues we've brought to the fore and it's like how can we piss in the face of all the goodwill we've created it's like we'll get a bunch of smelly, uh, unkempt teenagers to once again show up in the city squares of every major American city. Like, that will that will surely uh, push a bunch of Bernie voters back into the uh, Hillary Clinton mainstream of the party. And again, like, I think what we have to cop to is, like, I'm sort of working under the assumption that everyone's goal is and should be electoral success. For many people on the left, it's not. I mean, for many of them, being alienating to mainstream America is like a bug, is a feature, not a bug. Like they don't, you know, the program is radical. They don't necessarily all believe that uh, voting is the way this thing is going to get done. So it's not a problem if you do things that piss people off and it might even be good to cause such a disruption. So like, I'm not saying like they don't know what this is going to do and they'll be surprised. Like they may agree that the outcome of sort of like pissing a lot of people off will be the outcome and that's fine with them. Um, But the purported goal of these resistance protests is to get Trump out of the white house. They say, um, And I think this is problematic because I don't understand the relationship between protests and impeachment. Like, there's two things 
we can do, right, that I would view as legitimate to get the president out of the office. You can have some legal process where you try to find grounds for impeachment. Obviously, that's what the Democrats are doing. Or you can wait and vote someone out. Um, Now, these protests could be trying to sort of like rally people to keep attention on how bad things are going and, you know, try to get people to turn out in 2018 and 2020 to have this agenda uh, turn around. But that doesn't seem to be what they're talking about. It sort of seems to be like we're going to disrupt, you know, the system uh, by occupying public spaces until they get rid of the president. And we'll see if they actually do this, but it's just like that's profoundly undemocratic and unlikely in the extreme. Like, I don't think there's any... I don't know. You know, they got they got rid of Morsi in Egypt by having, like, the biggest public protests uh, maybe in the history of the world. But people think, like, almost like... I don't know. Like, between 5 and 10% of Egyptian society participated in that protest. I mean, if... If the Occupy people can get 5 to 10% of America to come out, maybe something very dramatic would happen. But as you see in Egypt, like, it is not a great outcome, um, necessarily, to have, like, a public disruption of society just, like, force the hand of the powers that be. Like, it's incredibly, like, you know, we still live in a world where the left is trying to catch up to the Tea Party in terms of organization and impact. So you're going to set the precedent that when people don't like the president, they go out and, like, sit on a highway uh, until they're removed. Removed by who? Removed by the military? Removed by the Supreme Court? On what grounds? Um, Like, I think if you go out and protest saying that your demand is that the president be replaced, you need to have a concrete idea of how that actually happens, because how it happens could be incredibly troubling. <laughs> I mean, what if what if these people are, uh, you know, protesting outside all day and then some general is like, well, it seems like the public supports removing the president and he conducts a coup, uh, maybe a violent one, maybe a nonviolent one. And he's like, OK, the president's out. You're happy. Uh, general Smith is now... <laughs> acting president or I don't know we've installed you know President Pence I mean that's another thing that's funny is that this group which I think is you know it's associated with Occupy but it's meeting under the moniker resist fascism says like it demands the replacement of the quote Trump and Pence regime and like you know we have a line of succession uh, and the person after Pence is Paul Ryan so like what you know, this doesn't make any fucking sense. How does this... Pl- like, I I don't know. Once again, I just am so confused by... Uh, I mean, maybe there's just, like, fundamentally a rejection of tactics. Like, you know, maybe the attitude is we do things because we believe they're right. We believe the right outcome would be this government being replaced. We don't think about sort of, like, the long-term impacts of that or how it would even happen, but... We just know it's it's survival is not right. Um, and I don't know, that's a stupid way to look at the world, but maybe that's what they would say. But um, 
you know, I'm, I'm confused by it and I don't, uh, I mean, whatever. They just met, they're talking to reporters. Maybe the vision and the demands will become clearer. And, you know, they don't need, they don't need specific demands so much. It's like Occupy, you know, I was sort of like snidely contemptuous of, but I do think Occupy built the network and the public demands for what eventually became Bernie Sanders' campaign. And you can say, well, Bernie Sanders gets most of the credit for seeing the sort of practical application of the, you know, PR achievements that Occupy helped build. But both were probably necessary. But looking at this, it's like if the focus is the removal of Trump as opposed to... uh you know, some economic message or social message. It's hard to see how a politician could capture that and run with it unless it's one of these mainstream Democrats that just wants to be like an impeachment person. Uh, you know, and like the Congress people that are most associated with impeachment and publicly saying we need to impeach all the time, first of all, they're not the most progressive. So like they're not aligned with these resist fascism folks politically, but also they're like clowns. Like it's a, it's a sideshow. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's well conceived at this moment, but I guess we'll, we all have to try and reserve judgment as long as is possible. And, you know, not talk too much about how they're terrible and stupid until they inevitably prove to be. 